Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. Can I tell you how I had, I have an incredible podcast planned out for you today. Just before I was about to push the play button, Essence dropped its May cover featuring Diddy and his daughters, right? So the twins and Chance. I posted the cover image on my page. I talked about the beautiful brownness. I talked about how the last time that I remember seeing Diddy on the cover of Essence, he was with Kim and Kim was pregnant with the twins. The twins are now 12. So it's been a long time since Diddy's been on the cover. For me, it was it was very nostalgic. I saw the girls. They look very much like their mother. They have a lot of Diddy in them. They're, they're a set of kids who, when they're standing with the father, they look like the father. When they're with the mother, they look like the mother. They are a good blend of both parents. And then Chance, she's the same age as the twins, but Kim is not her mom. She has a different mom, but neither here nor there. Families are defined in all sorts of different ways. But I posted the cover, making the connection that now Diddy is on the cover again with the twins, that it was a very full circle moment, and also very sad that that Essence is doing a Mother's Day cover featuring a pair of girls who don't have a mommy. I follow Diddy on Instagram. He seems to have really stepped up to the plate in terms of being a mommy and a daddy to his girls. I saw one video where he was rehearsing with the girls. They had a, I want to say a school play. It may have been something bigger than that. The girls were, were practicing and Diddy was in the background shaking the hips and sashaying in the whole nine yards because somebody got to teach the girls how to dance like girls. And Diddy was very much like, well, look, I'm mommy and daddy. So here I am. Kudos to him. He seems like he's really stepping up to the plate as he should. And while acknowledging that that's the role that he should be playing, I also acknowledge that it's really hard. It's really hard to be a single parent, whether you're a single mom or a single dad. I'm still saying all that to say I posted that Diddy cover and folks just got nasty. Diddy poured out and he said that he felt like, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said he felt like Kim was God's blessing to him. He says that he blew it. And people were like, okay, you thought she was God's blessing, but you still didn't marry her. You thought that she was God's blessing and you still didn't do right by her. You thought that she was God's blessing and you were with Cassie for 10 years. Okay, you felt all this strongly about this woman, but you still treated her like shit. I don't know the ins and outs of this man and this woman's personal relationship. By his own account, he didn't do right by her. People have called him out since her passing about the way that he treated her. And he said, yeah, I was wrong. I didn't do right by her. I miss her. He said blatantly, I fucked that up. I don't know what more people want from him. Here's the truth of the matter. Like, I've been done wrong by people that I deeply cared for. I could project all of that onto Diddy. I could, but Diddy didn't do it. Projecting it onto Diddy ain't the answer. And I feel like that's what a lot of people are doing. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Being the person that he is now, knowing the things that he knows now, knowing the outcomes of how things turned out now, he would go back and change a million things, but he can't. But in the present, He's 
actually taken accountability and said she deserved better. It would have been great if he came to this realization 12 years ago, 20 years ago. It would be great if Kim wanted to marry him and he wanted to marry Kim and they got married. Let me say this. The worst thing you could possibly do is get married when you know you're not ready to get married. If he wasn't ready to step up to the plate and perform as someone's husband, he had no business getting married. And I actually respect the fact that he didn't make that choice. And surely many people will say, well, you shouldn't have had children and you shouldn't have done this and you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have hemmed up this woman's time if that's what you weren't ready for. People are selfish. People make mistakes. People should do better and don't. But I think he's in a place now that life has really smacked him in the forehead with the passing of Kim Porter, where he's taken accountability, where he's trying to be a better person. And as someone who's been kicked in the ass by life, who's been smacked in the forehead by life, who's had to face all the things they were trying not to, I see Diddy as someone going through the same process. And it just ate in my heart to kick that man while he's down. I see him trying to work through his shit and trying to be a better person. If you follow that man on social media, you could tell that man is suffering. Talking about he just went and had like a two-hour cry. People who are in good places don't do two-hour cries. It's part of the process of getting to a good place. But two-hour cries, you in a place that you don't want to be. You do have the good sense to sit down with yourself and get it all out. If you've, if you've ever made a mistake with somebody that you cared about, if you didn't handle things the way that you thought you should, give Diddy the compassion and room to grow that you would wish somebody would give to you. Anyway, today's podcast is the shit. I had the opportunity to interview one of the friends in my head Someone that I feel like I've known for 10 years, but he and I both had to acknowledge we've never really had a real conversation. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Damon Young from Very Smart Brothers. He has an amazing new book out. It's called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. If you are a literate and informed black person, you've absolutely read his work. He is beyond talented. He's also the reason I don't write as much as I possibly could. Because sometimes I have ideas that I'm like, oh, I should write about that. And then he writes about it before I do. And I'm like, oh, ain't no sense of reinventing the wheel. He said what I would have said and said it better than me. So I just let it ride. I can't wait for you to hear. As a matter of fact, let's go. I'm so super excited to have you on today. You're one of my favorite writers. I feel like we've been friends forever. And we never really get to have like a sit down chat. We're always talking in passing. I don't remember actually having like an actual conversation, even though we've known each other for, you know, for what, 10 years, 11 years now. I don't I don't remember ever actually talking. But I feel like I know everything about you or most of the things about you, like the common thread of how you think, because I read like almost everything that you write. You know, and even your writing style, which are like very short sentences and your very intentional punctuation. I mean, you have a very distinct, oh, that Demetra wrote this. Even on Facebook status messages where I can... um you know, I could tell without even, you know, seeing the byline or seeing um, the profile 
Like, oh, Demetria wrote this shit. Yeah, I, I know. That's hilarious. I know the same thing about you and Panama, too. But I can tell, like, the distinction between, like, both of your voices. And then without seeing something came from DSB, like, I'll start reading it. And I'm like, oh, this is Damon wrote this. When you know someone that long and you've been reading so much shit, I feel like a writer who doesn't have that. I feel like if you've been doing this for a living and people are familiar with your work, then they should be able to know it's you without knowing it's you. Yes, I agree. Has anybody ever plagiarized you? Man, I used to care a lot more. Yeah. And I, I cared a lot more when maybe I didn't have the platform that I have now and um, I wasn't making as much money. Mm-hmm. So c- certain things were a bit more precious to me. And like someone like taking a blog or just taking a whole idea. And the thing is, ideas are not precious. But the way you express those ideas are. Seeing that sometimes would, would, would fuck with me. But then, but now it's just like I, I look at it as a, as a form of flattery. There's nothing that an imitator can do that's going to like hurt my pockets either. So, yeah, at this point, maybe I'll send a text to someone like, yo, you see this shit, but um, it doesn't. That's the last thought I have of it. It was much different. Like when all I had was the words and I didn't have like a platform and I didn't have any checks. I was like, all, all I have is these words. So they're very precious to me and you cannot have them. But now it's yeah. just like, yeah, all right, you stole my, my status. You posted it as your own. Yeah. Particularly, again, when you, you know, are, are, are trying to make some money. Um, often or just started making some money, words are your, your currency. If someone takes your, your words, even if they're not even actually taking your money, it feels like it. It feels like, yo, you are interfering with my, <laughs> with my, um, with my life and my livelihood. You know what I mean? Come on, chill. Talk to me about this book, What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker. It just came out in March. Last time I saw you, you had tattooed I don't know how many times it's on your, your arm. Like, I was like, Dame, seriously? It's like a good, like, eight, ten times. Probably a bit more than that. The tattoo, it's the font of the book. It's on my bicep. And it's in a, and it's in pretty big um, type. And then surrounding the font mm-hmm. is what doesn't kill you, makes you blacker. And, and very, very, very small font. It's like 20 times. Basically covers my whole upper right arm. The original title of the book was Nigga Neurosis. <laughs> Dame. And that's a term that kind of just encapsulates the state of being where, you know, you're wondering um, if a thing happened or what, how, how your race impacted, how your blackness impacted the thing that maybe did or didn't happen to you. So, like, if you did I get a scholarship because I'm black? Did I not get a scholarship because I'm black? Did I get for me? It's like, OK, I walked on. I walked up on this basketball court. No one knows me, but I still got picked first. <laughs> did mm-hmm. I get picked first because I'm black? I mean, so there's there's silly ways that it can go, and there's like more, you know, sincere and sober and darker ways that that question can go. And so that was the original title of the book, and my agent loved it. My editors at uh, Harper Collins loved it, and then my editor talked to her people at Amazon and her people at Barnes Noble, and they were like. Uh, we love you, Damon. We're excited for the book, but I don't know if we could have a book with the title. I don't know. We could carry a book with that title, but I don't know if we could like promote it with like 72 point font banners in the front of the store with, you know, with nigga just, just, just blared across it. So I came back and I'm had to think of a different title. What doesn't kill you makes you black or actually it came to me while I was, I was on the way to Essence Fest. I was doing some work on, uh, I think, the first or second draft, and I was like, holy shit, this this is it. Boom. I think this fits, you know, the bulk and 
everything so much better. And I, and I apparently love it so much that I got a tattoo on my arm forever. To, to go tattoo a title once on your arm <laughs> means something, but to do it 20 times means something <laughs> else. So what does this book mean to you? People, you know, when have asked me who the target audience for this for this book was and my answer is that it's me like i wrote this book because i wanted to read it and also because i needed to write it i've always been pretty like severe introvert this book it's funny it's a critique of race and white people and masculinity and you know all this other shit but it's also like really transparent and really vulnerable and and just really open about about anxieties and neuroses and things that are like really unflattering and um, self-consciousnesses and you know just the whole gamut I just feel like writing it was kind of like you know what boom it's here it's out like I'm, I'm here this is me I'm not going to like keep shit inside of me anymore. If you follow the book, it's just me getting progressively more comfortable in my own skin and just getting tired of performing, tired of like faking or facades or whatever. And I feel like this book is like the final like culminating act. It's like, you know what? All this shit that I'm embarrassed about, all the self all the shit that I'm self conscious about, all the shit that I want people to know, here you go. I'm gonna put it put it in this book. HarperCollins is going to publish it. You're going to find it at Barnes and Noble. You're going to find it at Amazon. You're going. Your niggas are going to have book clubs about it. It's it's was a form of catharsis and also a bit of a form of therapy, I guess. I read the preface, and you were talking about like how you were terrified to write this book, and you just wanted to like release some stuff. So this is exactly what you're explaining now. But when I started reading it, I was like, whoa. I'm known as a as a person who just sort of puts it all out there, but even I have limits. My boundary is what I'm comfortable with people coming up to me in Target and asking me about, because some people ask me some really uncomfortable questions, and I'm like, sis, I'm just trying to buy tampons. Like, stop. But I get it. It comes from a good place and, and genuine inquisitiveness. But what is your boundary, or do you have one, of what you will and will not speak about? Because you talked about some well, things here that I was like, whoa, Damon, whoa. Before I even ask that, answer that question, I need to ask you, what made you go, whoa? The stuff about your parents, particularly your, jo- your father's unemployment and your family's homelessness, I will tell a good chunk of my stuff because I feel like that's my story and it's my story to tell. In general, I don't really talk about my parents beyond very superficial things because I feel like that's their story. And I still need to be able to show up to Thanksgiving and be on good terms with the family. And my parents huh. would be pissed if I shared details of arguments that they had or their financial situation or something like that. Including some of the stuff about my parents was, was probably the most difficult. The, the bulk is filled with it. If I'm the main character, then they are like the, the, the main supporting actors. Before I, I um, actually physically sat down and wrote it, I had, you know, obviously had an outline, an idea of what I wanted to write or where I wanted to go. And I spoke to my dad about it. You know, I, I told him, like, hey, this is what I plan to say. This is what I plan to talk about. It'll tell the truth. You have to trust me that I won't be egregious. Mm-hmm. I won't be traditionalistic. You know, my dad does trust me. I mean, that's not just my dad. He's like my homie, my nigga. Like, that's my dad is my dude. He was fine with it. There are other people who are in the, who make appearances in the book. Um, my wife, for instance, I'll talk about how we got together. Some friends of mine, including like an ex-girlfriend that I'm still friends with. Um, one of my best friends. There are people who are in the book, and I, I, I reach out to them beforehand. It's like, you know, this is what I plan on saying. 
how do you feel about this? And then after I actually wrote it, I went back again. It's like, you know what? Here it is. You know, <laughs> speak now or forever hold your peace. This is this is it. Ultimately, you know, the decision on what to include and not include came down to just how vital it was to tell the story I wanted to tell. I think that's a good boundary. I'm working on my third book, which is about the last, I guess, two years or so of my life since I left New York and then moving to D.C. and then right up before I moved to L.A. And a lot of the decisions that I've made in the last couple of years have been very based on things that happened with my parents. Because, you know, it's all tied together. Like the decisions that you make as an adult are largely based on things that happen as a child, as an adolescent in college. It all comes together and culminates in something. But a lot of those decisions are based on things that my, I've seen with my parents and some patterns that I've repeated and some patterns that I'm trying to break. It's very, very difficult for me to not write it, but submit the draft that my agent is desperately. She's like, Demetrius, send me this goddamn draft. And I'm like, yeah, OK, yeah, I got to work on it. Yeah, I've got to. And I've never been hesitant like this before. And I think it's because like when I first started writing, I was writing to friends and then I was writing to, you know, people who were just genuine followers. And now I'm writing to a little bit of everybody. So people who tune in because they like me and then people who tune in because they don't and they just want ammo. So it's very, a very weird place for me to write in right now. And I'm struggling with that a lot. You know, obviously our, our circumstances are different and our stories are different. Again, I just... The, the, the need to be vulnerable and the need to be transparent like that, that was an essential part of the book. When I was connected to my agent um, and she asked me what type of book that I had, that I have in mind, my original idea was to do something that would be similar in, in format and format and structure to VSB, to the writing I do on VSB and, and other places on the internet. I'm known for VSB for these really like um, very voicey, very aggressive, reactive, snarky takes on pop culture, on race, on, you know, whatever. And so instead of writing about white tears for 600 words, I write about, I devote a whole chapter to it. And so my agent, Tanya McKinnon, who, who's, you know, who's a warlock, she's, she's amazing, <laughs> was like, yeah, that's a, that's a good idea. And I think that'd be a good book. But I think, I don't know, I think, I think a better, I think a different idea would be better for you. And she's the one who came up with the idea for me to write a memoir. And also, you can insert those cultural and racial and, you know, societal um, insights and critiques into that narrative. It was one of those situations where I knew she was right, but I'm stubborn as fuck, so I didn't agree immediately. It took me like a week to agree, even though I agreed in like five minutes. That's such writer shit. Our egos are yeah. out of control sometimes. Yeah, I'm only 100 pages in, but... I think you're at that level where things happen and people want to know immediately, what do you think? Because that informs how they think about it. But just to know like who you are and what shapes your opinions and point of view and how you approach things is just super, super interesting. You're 100 pages in, so you're probably at around like bomb-ass poetry maybe. And I'm in college and I'm writing these bad poems. Yes, uh, yes, yes, um, yes. Okay. I just started okay. on like No Homo when you called me and was like, call me because we're supposed to talk now. Yeah, so and, and it gets... <laughs> you, you think it <laughs> <laughs> it gets crazier from here it, it definitely gets like i get a lot deeper like it, it the book starts i'm not going to say completely light but it starts on a lighter end and then it goes yeah you'll see i look forward because i was engrossed in the first hundred pages i was mad at you for like breaking down darius love hall because of the truth in it that darius kind of was a fuck boy 
Not not kinda. You need to read. I, re- I just I mean I read it thoroughly, and I was mad at you because like my issues with Love Joan have always been like very like logistical things. Like why the hell would you take the train from Chicago to New York? And she never said she was afraid of flying, so it doesn't make sense. But I've overlooked intentionally, willfully, some other holes in the character development. Yeah. Just the fact that these niggas had these giant ass houses and these lofts and like, d- does anyone have a job? There is this like a, a photographer. And, and but she was house sitting. So it wasn't her house. Still. <laughs> it's like still she had no money. Like, yeah. yeah, you need an outside income to pay bills and dinners and dates and yeah, and even that scene, you know, the scene in the beginning, you know, where he reads, um, you know, Brother to the Night, most iconic scene probably in the movie, and it's some fuck shit because he literally just meets her five minutes before he does the poem about her. And no one can write a new poem that quickly. No one can write a new poem about someone, perform it, have like a fucking, you know, jazz instrument instrumentation, you know, background, all that choreograph in five minutes. That's not going to happen. So what what really happened in in the real world is that he wrote that poem for someone else, met her, and then just cut and paste you know her name <laughs> into it and then performed it for her. Like that's that's the only way that could have happened. In 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 a moment you're watching it, it's like holy shit, this is this is lit. This is this is amazing. This nigga is a genius. But then you watch it now and it's like damn, this it, this is some manipulative ass shit. Bill Bellamy was was you know on the on the trash spectrum. Bring in the, the woman that you know your your boy was in love with and was just with to a mutual friend's party is like it, it's the lowest of the low. Like you can't you can't really get worse than that. No, and he didn't really like her. She was just a pawn to get yeah, like no. a one up on Darius. It's one of them situations where it's like, yo, why is this nigga in your crew? I love your takes on culture. I was um one of the parts I was reading was about the breakdown of Michelle Williams from from Destiny's Child. <laughs> Your breakdown of her about how she was probably like the most popular, most beautiful person in every other aspect of her life until she joins Destiny Child with two people who are largely considered more popular and more talented and more attractive than her. It's a hard life. Here's some background or some context. I made some heavy edits to that Michelle Williams chapter. To that Michelle Williams part. I, I know that she's had some, you know, some mental health issues. Yes. I wanted to make sure that I wasn't like picking fun of her. I just wanted to to make an analogy. And the analogy that I was making was that, you know, I played ball in college. I was on scholarship, but I didn't have like the best career. But the thing is, once I left campus, you know, go back home to Pittsburgh, like I'm known as like Dame the ball player. Like niggas knew me all over the state of Pennsylvania. But then I get to college and I'm on that team and, you know, I had some injury issues, some some like worth ethic issues. I always have trouble saying that work ethic, some work ethic issues. And my career didn't pan out the way that I wanted it to. I, I was like one of, known as one of the best players everywhere I went, except for when I was on campus at Canisius. And the thing is, I'm still I'm still a scholarship division one ball player, but I'm like the ninth or tenth man in the rotation. And I use Michelle Williams as an example of like someone who. Probably wherever her, her entire life, she was like the baddest chick, the best singer, like the temp, like the template that other people would like look to and be like, you know, that's that's who I want to be. The type of woman who people notice when you're not there. Mm-hmm. Like I thought, I thought she was going to be here. I thought she was going to be at this party. How come she's not here? And then going from that 
and then joining a, a, a group with Beyonce, like joining Beyonce's group that's managed by her dad and outfitted by her mom. And the, 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 the other person in the group is Beyonce's best friend, like basically her sister. And we're putting sister in quotes because, you know, who knows? And, um, mm-hmm. and so all of that <laughs> going from that to, to going from the pre Destiny's child situation. And again, this is an assumption. I, you know, obviously don't know where life was like before that to being in that group. And now being in a position where everyone's paying attention to you, but the only time people actually acknowledge you is if you do something wrong. If the group succeeds, it's not Michelle that's getting the the honor, the lodge, or whatever. It's Beyonce, and then it's Kelly. And if there's like something, if like the track is off or performance is off or something like that, it's like, oh, what did what did Kelly, what did what did Michelle do? Michelle do. And she's a cute girl. Like, yeah, and that's the thing. She, you know, and again, any in any other 99.99999% situations or groups or whatever, she would be a star. But she just happened to join a group that included Beyonce, who wasn't the star that she is now, but was still pretty big thing, a pretty big name at that time. Yeah. And was also centered because, again, like it's. Her father is the manager and her mother is the designer. So she got yeah. the best outfits and her father made sure she got the prime spots. Yeah. And that, and that, and again, that, um, that section, you know, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, and it's only like three paragraphs where I talk about, talk about Michelle Williams. I just wanted to make sure that it wasn't like, it wasn't like too snarky or, or mean or anything like that. Because again, I, I, I can relate. Who do you choose to snark on or fall back from? How do you decide? Um, I, I wish that there was like a science behind it. Like sometimes it's literally when I have time. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's when I have the words, like there are times when I want to get back, when I want to like, you know, clap at someone or clap at something. And it's like, you know what? The words ain't coming together the way I want them to. So I'm going to just stand, I'm going to just stand down. Cause I, I can't, if I'm going to go there, I want to go there the way I want to go there. And sometimes the words, you know, you're right. Or sometimes the words just don't come the way that, you know, and with, with those sorts of things, they have to come quickly. Like you have to be able to to think of a thing like on your feet um, relatively quickly, because if you don't, then the moments pass. You've written several things that are very, for lack of a better word, provocative. I'm specifically thinking about like one of your most popular pieces. People, Straight yeah. black men are the white people of black people. What compelled you to write that? It's just existing, <laughs> existing in in the world and seeing how black women are are treated, not just like on a on a physical scale, but like how stories and how memories and how um, words are regarded with the cynicism that 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 often come. From men, when a woman is talking about how talking about street harassment, how that makes them feel unsafe or or sexual assault or sexual harassment or or any of these things that 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 affect women as women exist in the world. And very often our response to it is like this doubt or this gaslighting or like this this like interrogating questioning where. It's like, well, what were you wearing or what were you doing? Or are you sure 
it really happened the way you think it happened? Are you sure it really happened the way it actually happened? If you just step back and look at the language, look at the rhythms of the response, the tenor of the response, there are very, very close parallels to how some white people respond when black people are talking about racism. It's like, are you sure this happened? Okay, I need to see some studies or some stats. This is all in your head. Or what were you wearing? You know, how come, you know, were you wearing a hoodie or were you, you know, was your brake light out? Was that why you got stopped by the cops? I wrote that piece just to, I guess, just to articulate just how, how hurtful that sort of response could be. And, and I made, and I made the analogy just to show like, yeah, y'all, you know, we, we want white people to take us seriously when we talk about race and racism and whatever, but we we are, a lot of us are doing the same thing to black women that white people do to us. And also we ain't the only ones who face racism. <laughs> like black women deal with racism too. So like, so now they're dealing with racism plus the sexism plus not being believed by black men or white people. The response to that piece was overwhelmingly positive. I mean, um, I mean, Belle Hooks herself reached out. Wow. And I actually went to Kentucky to her institute at Berea College, and we had like I hung out for, with her for like an evening. We had a conversation in front of an audience, but the people who were upset with it were very loud. 85, 90 percent of the people who read the piece got it and understood it and agreed with it. But that 10 percent, I'd say like 80 percent of that 10 percent were very loud with their disagreement. But like there are probably still niggas making YouTube videos about me <laughs> in, their, in their aunt's basement right now. Like you, if you go, if you put my if you Google me or no, not Google. But if you search my name on YouTube, I, I would bet like half of the shit would be shit that that's me, you know, doing like some media stuff or some video stuff and the other half is responses to that piece. It was a really powerful piece. People kept reposting it for like yeah. months. Yeah. Yeah, I think Terry Crews just reposted it or retweeted it like 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 two or three months ago and it got like another life. It's like it's like Jason Voorhees. Like people won't just let it die. So I've written like hundred and fifty pieces in a whole entire ass book since then, but people find a way to to refresh and, and dig up that piece. Is there anything you've written that you regret writing? Oh, all the all the fucking time. <laughs> yeah. like what like is there anything you're like if i had to do over again i probably wouldn't have done that in 2017 i went to the 20 year reunion my 20 year high school reunion and i um i wrote a piece about that a week later and it was written with my typical like irreverent snark not mean but like p- picking fun at shit and you know just being fun and I, and I had a good time and i made sure to express that and i appreciate the people who put it on but some of the people who, you know, who organized the reunion read the piece and were offended by it. They felt they were actually even hurt that I was, that I had this take on this thing that they had put so much effort into. It was one of the situations where, like, sometimes I forget that people are actually going to read <laughs> the things mm-hmm. that I write, like people, people who actually exist in the world and might feel a way about it. And again, I, I, I would have definitely written about it that reunion again. And I'm not the sort of nigga who goes to reunions and does any of that sort of shit. Like I visited my um, Kinesis College for a book talk last or two weeks ago. And that was the first time I've been back on campus in 17 years. I don't like once I graduate from a place, then I'm done. I'm done. Move on. Yeah. 
So yeah, of course I was going to write about my 20 year high school reunion, but I, I do think that people just are going to feel a way about a person with this platform writing about them. Even if it's a, even if it's like a great thing that I wrote and I have to keep that in mind. I, I don't, I, I want to be honest. I want to be funny. I want to be transparent, but I don't want to be like a person that like is like mean. There's some people whose feelings deserve to be hurt, but someone who's just trying to have a have a nice and fun reunion, you know, isn't deserving of that. And I don't think I was that at all, but I could see how someone could read what I wrote and have that takeaway. I mean, there's shit that I wrote two weeks ago um, that I'm like that I, that I'll go back and want to edit and like want to change a line or want to change an analogy, shift an analogy. And now you haven't gotten this far in the book yet. I also have a whole chapter devoted to the time in 2011, 2012, I wrote this really awful piece about sexual assault. What did you say? I, I, I gave a context for it. Um, I like explain like where my life was at that point and what led me to, to write just a terrible thing like that. And I also talked about my response to it and my initial response, like my very first like day after response was like incredulousness. It was like, you know, who the fuck are these people trying to come at me? Don't they know who I am? I'm, I'm like, a, I'm a quote unquote good guy. You know, I made a mistake, but, you know, you don't need to be saying these things about me. Then after that, that incredulousness kind of transmuted into shame and embarrassment where it was just like, man, I, I really fucked up. I also really hurt people. I, I disappointed people. I did something that maybe wasn't like literally violent, but it was a violent act. Someone coming to VSB and expecting it to be like this safe space to build and, and talk shit and whatever with like like-minded and intellectual black people, whatever. And then I, I put this out there after that embarrassment, after that shame, it was just like, well, what, what do I need to do in my own life? To prevent me from from doing a, sh- a thing like this again, like how do I need to change? What do I need to change about the relationships I'm in? What do I need to need to change about how I how I perceive myself, how I perceive women? Like what 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 is what is wrong? What is happening inside of me? And again, I wrote this piece trying to be irreverent and funny, and and we're more irreverent, not funny, but more like irreverent. And okay, this person has this take, I'm gonna have this another take, but. It was just so disrespectfully, just awful and terrible. And eventually, I just, I just got to a place where I was like, you know what? I don't want to be a person who creates harm. And I don't want to have a platform that does that. I don't want to create work that does that. I want to create work that harms women, that harms black women. Particularly since black women have been so instrumental and so vital to, to my status. And now I'm harming the very people who who put me here so what what do i need to do to change i feel like even though that piece was just so like i i I cringe when talking about it still even though i have a whole chapter about it i still like if you see my face right now i can hear how uncomfortable you are speaking about it that's why i'm not asking you what it is exactly i want to read it and then i'll probably send you another like long text message with my thoughts about it well i want to dive into a shoebox like after even talking about it i did it I can't say, oh, that wasn't me. That, like, that, that was me. I wasn't hacked. I wasn't, I wasn't compromised in any way. I, I, I wrote it. I hit publish. I have no editor at VSB. I, I, I was editor. Do you have someone read your stuff 
now before you post yeah. it? Are you yes, still? Yes, okay. Yes. I have people like particularly like with things that like a piece like the straight black men piece, any piece that deals with like gender, sexuality, pieces that are very sensitive, particularly a man talking about these, a straight man talking about these things. I do have people that I run shit by. I don't know if I would say that I regret it because I feel like I did need that response to really interrogate certain parts about me, certain parts about myself and come out on the other end, a better writer, a better thinker, a better friend, a better citizen, a better boyfriend, a better husband. I guess the really fucked up part though. And, and, and you, see this, you know, in culture and, and wherever where a man does some fucked up thing, he goes away, he comes back better. You know, yeah, you did a great you did the right thing. You evolved. You got better. You you know, you grew. That's that's a good thing. But it's like, why did it take so long? Like why did you have to do this fuck shit in order to grow? Like why can't why couldn't you just have grown already without it? Why do and this is something that I'm, I'm speaking specifically about men. Like, why does our evolution or whatever, if it happens, seem to take so much longer? And then it takes long and we end up harming the women around us, the women who love us the most. And leaving like all this like collateral damage. And then and then, and then we're like 50 years old, like, holy shit, I've changed. But what about <laughs> what about the first 40 years of your life and all the people who were affected, you know, during that time? Those are the sorts of questions that, you know, as the book continues, the book asks a bit more. And I ask I ask those questions myself. And some of those questions I don't I don't have answers to. But there are questions that I ask myself. So and there are questions I still ask myself. So I um I had to include them in a book. I, I sometimes wonder if I if I may speak just completely freely, if I'm giving you credit for being accountable, which is something that's required of women nonstop, because just as you point out, like men can make it to 40 and 50 and then have like these aha moments and decide they're going to change. I don't think women are given that lead way. The bar for us is low as fuck. I mean, a bar for us is like Shanae. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's one of them. It's so low that if you don't look, you could bang your, you could bang your shin on it. That is an obvious byproduct of patriarchy, where it's not just black men, it's men in general are, you know, we're given certain leeways, we're certain, we're given chances, we're given, you know, opportunities, we're given benefit of the doubt in a way that women aren't. If you are a man who recognizes that, then the, the very least, the very least you could do is articulate it. Say, like, you know, this is true. Like, women aren't making this up. This is actually true. And then once you go past the articulation, then okay, well, do something about it. Like, if you have a platform, if you have a privilege, do what you can to amplify and do what you can to, to raise other voices who might not have the same platform or the same status. And also, you know, I think most importantly, the next step is holding other men accountable. And, that, and that's hard. That's a hard thing for, for, for people to do, particularly if people are like, nigga, I, I, I knew you. I, knew what you were doing two years ago. Now you're talking about, you know, do better, do this, do that. Nigga, I, I know you. That is a valid response to that. But you have to kind of take your ego out of it and just and just continue. 
I appreciate that. You know, we talk about, again, I make this comparison, this analogy between, between this, this particular subject and like racism and white people. Black people, like we ain't, there's nothing we could do that's going to change racism. Like we could protest, we could march, we've been protesting, we've been marching, we've been, we've had all the fury, we've had all the anger, we've had all, all of that, the whole gamut. We even had a, a black president. I mean, we, we, I was like, we, we filled the quota of all the things that we could do to try to convince white people that we're deserving of, of, of equal rights and equal humanity, equal citizenship and all that. And so if, if any sort of change is actually going to happen in, in terms of just the racial, I don't know, mood and tenor and atmosphere of America, it has to be white people talking to other white people. Like there are white people, there's some white people that will listen to me, but the white pe- but there are white people who would never listen to me. Like there are white people who, if I articulate that something is racist, are going to double down on the racism because a black person is calling them out. Like there are studies that that have proven that that like some people that some white people actually get more racist when they're when when their racism is called out. Those people need to be held accountable by the white people in their family, the white people that they're friends with, the white people in the carpool, in the barbecue, where, wherever in, wherever they are in these in these white spaces that we're not that we're not privy to. And those are the conversations that, if anything, is going to shift perspective or, or whatever, again, it has to be white people talking to other white people when it's nothing but white people in the audience. And I feel the same way but with men in gender relations and how we you know, collectively treat women. And I, I just think that if, if there's going to be any like substantive change, it has to be men holding other men accountable. Now, how does that look? That could be a barbershop conversation that happens and, and you call someone out for, for using language instead of just laughing it off. And that could be something even as seemingly innocuous as the music you listen to and actually asking yourself, does this perpetual torrent of, of bitch and hoe and all of that, does that, we, we, we like to say that has no effect on us, it that does. we're, you know, that we're, just evolved and we're just listening to the music, we're listening to the beat and hearing that language. But it but it you know, if if this is what you've been listening to for thirty years, then yeah, that it's gonna have some effect on your thinking. It it that's it's impossible. Like you have to be a sociopath in order for it not to affect you. Looking at just just things that we consider to be just mundane and innocu- and innocuous and innocent that may not be that. I'm so used to trying to convince men of the harm that they do or of how to be accountable or things that they can do to be genuine allies as opposed to just reading women's pages and chiming in but never saying anything to their guy friends about it. I'm almost at a loss of words to talk to someone who actually is a genuine ally and takes accountability and recognizes their wrongdoing and tries to make amends for it. It's what I think most women hope for in the behavior of grown ass men that sometimes we just don't get. I, I, I appreciate you saying that. And and I don't want to paint myself as like some sort of like singular, you know, whatever, because there are, there are a lot of niggas out there who are, who are, who are sincerely trying to do the right thing and who maybe don't have the right words to express it or don't, who don't know exactly what to do, but are sincerely, cognizant of you know what 
shit is fucked up. So how do I, how do I fix it? What do I need to do? It may, it may, it maybe just don't have the tools to, to figure out how to do that yet. Shit, maybe I don't have the tools. I mean, I am, I am still, I still believe I'm evolving. I still believe I'm progressing. I still believe that I, I have a lot of space. I have a lot of blind spots. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a continual, it's a continual thing. And, and the thing is, part of it is selfish too, because I feel like if, if, if I become a better thinker and like a more like empathetic person and just more like worldly and, and just more cognizant of this, everything that's happening in the world and how people are affected and how people are feeling, then that's going to make me a better writer too. Mm-hmm. And I think it has. How are you balancing? Are you still writing right now in the midst of all this stuff? Are you still I'm, doing BSB? I'm on like, I'm on a leave. Okay. And I have been since uh, book launch. So I'm actually going to get back to writing probably next week. But even then, I still have a bunch of other stuff that I'm going to be doing, like a book-related commitment. So you know, we'll see how that goes. When I finish this proposal, which is, like, is supposed to be done by Monday, it's not going to happen, but don't tell my agent <laughs> that. I said I was actually going to start like writing, writing again. Like I took a year off from it to just like get my head straight. But then like I miss it. I do like a lot of personal writing that I don't publish. I just do Instagram updates. But I was like, I'm a writer. I should probably actually write, write on occasion. Very often when I do these like these book talks, people ask me for like writing tips. And I tell them the best tip is just, is just to start writing and also read all the fucking time. And, and I say that because writing like builds a muscle and you make it a part of your routine and it becomes like muscle memory after a certain point. But the flip side of that is that when you go a while without writing, it's like going a while without working out and you get back to the gym for that first time. It's like, holy shit, everything hurts. <laughs> what am I doing right here? I anticipate feeling that when I get back to VSB. You like, think? Yeah. I feel I like you've got like years of muscle memory built up. Like you'll probably be okay. I mean, I'll be okay after after a week or so. But like when I first get back, it's not going to be. I know it's not going to be easy. Well, I'll pitch you all stuff. I'll try to pitch in where I can. I want to write things, but then like I'll see you or Panama covered something, and I'm like, yeah, they said what I would say. No need to reinvent <laughs> the wheel. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> you could definitely, you know, hit me up, pitch whatever. You know, we um, you know, we love to have you as much as you as we can have. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I have three more questions for you. Okay. One of them is about Game of Thrones. Have you seen the latest episode? I, I have, yeah. What, what do you predict for the ending? Who do you think is going to take the throne? Who do I think is going to take the throne? Um, so you know what? I have, I have intentionally not done any predictions with Game of Thrones. I want to just watch and see what happens. Like, I don't want to... I don't want to like make bets. I just want to just be basically just a pure audience member, like a pure consumer. That's it. Since you're asking me the question, I mean that the best and the most natural answer is that the night King. I mean, that's the most logical answer. If things happen the way they look like they're going to happen and are supposed to happen, then yeah, I mean, you're not going to stop an army of the dead. Every time one of them kills you, they just gain a new member. But they stopped them before, like they've attacked before, hence the wall. Yeah, they didn't have a dragon before. Oh, yeah, the dragon, the blue dragon changed everything. And it's funny, you know, watching the episode last night, I was watching uh, my wife and a couple of friends, and we were just joking that like in each of these, you know, and these are like these character building, well, not even character building, but character reminding scenes. Like you're reminded 
this episode is basically a big ass reminder of who these people are and why a lot of their deaths next week are going to be so impactful. We were joking that during each of these scenes, they should have just had Bran popping up like, yo, we don't have time for this. <laughs> <laughs> next week, I think it's going to be a massacre. Have you been following the dog shitting conference? Is it the dog shitting or is it just the people on campus? The Howard University kerfluffle about gentrification around the campus and then basically white folks walking their dogs on campus? Yeah, I've been loosely following that. Panama wrote a really great take on it. He wrote a take on the, um, I guess, the, um, Howard University president wrote a letter. It was this very, like, thinly veiled, like, y- y'all niggas don't know what the fuck y'all talking about. Who, who You know, we're Howard. <laughs> you know, it was with very professional, very academic language. And Panama just basically just broke it down to like how that would have read in a barbershop instead of, <laughs> you know, on, on official, you know, um, Howard University. Uh, what do you call that thing that you put on the letterhead? Top? Letterhead. Yeah. Instead of official letterhead. This shit is happening all over the country where white people. The problem with white people. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with white people. Today's the problem. problem. People. The, the, today's problem and just the problem in general with white people. And, and again, I'm, I'm going to say not all white people. You know, I shouldn't. I'm going to stop saying it because I don't need to say it because people who know know that it's not all white people. But the problem with white people is that they don't know how to be guests. They don't know how to enter a space and respect the customs and the history, the language, the the members, the owners of that space. Maybe it's a just a byproduct of or or like a a remnant of manifest destiny where, you know, they feel like wherever they go, that they are the first people there and they, you know, lay claim to it. Yeah. White people just don't know how to be guests. And that's what this whole circumstance just reminds me of. It's like these people who are moving into the city onto this property. And, and the thing is, yes, you could, you could, it's not closed off. You could, you could walk, you could do this, you could do that, but you have to respect the people who were there who live there, who, whose space this belongs to. And in so many spaces around the country, you know, in DC and in some parts of New York city, and it's happened in Pittsburgh too. You have these white people coming into these, you know, historically black spaces and pretending as if they're the first people there, the only people there, and then becoming annoyed when the people who are living there and have you know, been for generations, have been for generations, have an issue with their, Lack of decorum. I lived through gentrification in in Brooklyn when I first moved to Crown Heights. Um, And I lived there for 15 years. It was like blackity black, West Indian, Caribbean black, like no white people whatsoever. And then over the course of time, it was like young white girls with ponytails and booty shorts running towards the projects at 11 p.m. at night, like or having meltdowns because the bodega was closed because they pray five times a day. Everybody else knows the schedule. We just wait outside. But people like flipping out and banging on the door. And it's like, yo, 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 you got to respect the customs of the place that you've moved into, which unfortunately I've not seen happen, not in Brooklyn and not in D.C., which is where I'm from, which is gentrifying faster than any other place, according to studies right now. And a similar thing is happening in Pittsburgh, particularly uh, East Liberty, which is community, uh, a community I talk about in the Balkan community I grew up in, where, you know, like right now, you'll see the, these white people with the, the kombucha and the Lululemon head to toe, walking their dogs, walking their bouviers, like down the street. They, they wouldn't have driven down 20 years ago. Yep. And now they're just walking in broad daylight, just acting like that they that they own the place 
I know how ridiculous that that might sound. Me saying, "Oh, look at these motherfuckers walking, <laughs> walking down the street. <laughs> look at these assholes <laughs> walking down the street, <laughs> having having a good time and safe." It exists in a larger context, and in the larger context is that for for this to happen, people who look like us very often are displaced, forced to move out, and then. These new people come and a neighborhood gets all of these like newer amenities and and in and all of this this other shit that people who very often look like us can't afford anymore. And then have to have to leave, have to move out of out of their homes. While walking without context is obviously a good thing. I mean, I'm not gonna be mad at someone that's just <laughs> walking their dog down the street at night, minding their own damn business, but that that walk is able to happen. That space is able to be granted to them because it's a, of a larger context, which wraps into just the American history of blackness being minimized, being occupied, being, you know, shuttered, being flattened, being being treated basically like weeds, where if there's a property, a vacant lot, and there's nothing living there but weeds... You're just like, well, we'll just pull up the weeds and put them somewhere else and we'll just build on top of it. Very often, black people in America, particularly black people in the cities where this, this sort of gentrification is happening, are treated like weeds. That's a great analogy. Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. I, I have so many analogies that are either plant-based or food-based. Like, I, I think every analogy that I have is, you know, I haven't. I haven't gone into my lasagna and Italian food analogies, but if you give me if you give me more time, <laughs> I'll go into those too. I mean, on a deeper level, food is culture. Like a lot of culture is based on like what people eat, what they enjoy. Like I get it. I, you know what? Boom. Oh, so I actually have two more questions. You use nigga a lot in a time when a lot of people have stopped using nigga, or at least publicly <laughs> have stopped using it. What's that about? <laughs> well, I mean, I use it because I, I use it. It's a word that I use. It's one of my favorite words. Um, it's very intentional that I that I use nigga. Like it's not it's not intentional in in the aspect that it's like something I don't usually use and I'm trying to shoehorn it in to make myself seem more authentic or whatever. But it's intentional because of the history behind that word. And also because that word to me has always has always represented like love and community for me to not use it would be inauthentic because it's a part, you know, it's, it's, it's in my toolbox. When the people are occupied, the first victim is often language. You know, you're told what to say, what language to use, what we're going to call you now, what you're going to call yourselves. Now you're not allowed to read. You're not allowed to write. And, and again, that's very intentional. And I think that using that language and also, you know, my book has a lot of very like Pittsburgh specific slang and black specific slang and language that, that, that I don't even bother explaining. That's intentional because, again, that's that's a part of me. That's a part of my experience. That's part of my history. And my story would be incomplete and inauthentic without without telling it. Now, there's a whole there's actually a whole chapter later on in the book about about me using that word and why I do. Just from a from a practical standpoint, one of the best things about nigga is that it's so versatile. Like it could be a noun, it could be a verb, 
It could be an adverb. It can be an adjective. It can. Um, it could be just like an exclamation, like "nigga." It could be a question. It could be just a, a way of just getting through all the bullshit and just dislocating the truth. Like someone tells you a thing, and your response is like, "nigga." Like that, that again. That no other word in the English language has that many functions. To not use it would be denying myself of of I don't know of that uh, of that weapon. And also, I like the fact that white people can't. Like I, I I like having that privilege. Black people debate amongst each other about you know who gets to use it or whether or not we should use it at all. We we have those debates. There's no consensus among us with that word, but there definitely is a consensus that they can't use they it. They can't use it. Could just be me being a little kid at the playground, but I enjoy the fact that I can do it and they can't. You take the little wins that you can. The little little. You know what? You plant the flags the, where you can. You know, maybe it's petty, maybe it's 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 immature, but fuck them niggas. Last question for you. You sent me a screenshot of a part of the book that I haven't gotten to yet. You said it was a mixture or a combination of characters, so I won't be as so flattered to think it's exclusively (laughs) about me. But you talked about a panel that we shared in 2010. You thought that I was holding court. That's specifically the word that you used. The the person you described, I should say, not just me, but was holding court and was unintimidated. And I wondered if you'd gotten to the point where you can sit on a panel and you feel like you are the person holding court and you are unintimidated by the audience or the interviewer or anything at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm there now. Like, I'm there now. Like, I, I'm doing some of these talks in front of, like, five, six hundred people and talking about, like, very intimate, very vulnerable shit about the book. And I, I, know, I know what I'm doing. But it took, it took at least a decade to get comfortable doing that. And it still takes some Jack Daniels before. <laughs> and even during the talking did in Brooklyn with Nicole Hannah Jones, we did, we drank a whole bottle of bullet. On, on stage. stage. Yeah. On stage. So y'all we were, were fucked up on stage. I mean, I think, I think I might've been a little bit more fucked up because I was drinking beforehand too. <laughs> but, it, but it made for a great talk. Like it wasn't like we weren't like up there sloppy. It was just, we were loose and going places that maybe wouldn't have gone. If we had both been completely sober, I remember that 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 experience that I referenced in the book, and it's mostly you. I mean, it's like a combination of of panels or whatever, but I mostly had you in mind. And I remember just being, you know, I've, I've always been, as I said earlier, you know, I've always been, you know, a bit of an introvert, and so getting in front of all these people, excuse me, to talk about things was like I. I I was the kid in high school. I still, you know, I would get nervous raising my hand, especially if like a cute girl was in the same classroom, which was kind of paradoxical because I was also a basketball star. But yeah, I've gotten progressively more comfortable with that. And now I think I'm a lot better than I was. But again, that advice that that the you and you as in quotations from the book gave me about drinking Jack Daniels was helpful. Most people have anxiety about public speaking. And the people who are really good at it just find a way to work through it or find a way to channel that anxiety and use it as fuel for like ambition or fuel for the talk or whatever it is that they're doing. But most people get scared. Most people get butterflies. The people who are able to succeed are the ones who 
who kind of just lean into the butterflies like, you know what, I feel this, I'm experiencing this, and I'm just going to I'm gonna use it. And yeah. also I'm gonna drink some Jack. No, I yeah. say get butterflies every single time. And I was told by like a, a very prolific public speaker, they were like, the time that you don't get butterflies is the time you should quit because it stopped mattering to you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. oh, yes, I will use that as my fuel. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you for your time and your transparency and being so candid and just being you. You're one of my favorite people and favorite writers. So oh, I'm thank you. really thank happy you. to have you today. Thank you, Demetra. It always feels in insincere when someone gives you a compliment and you respond like, oh, you too. But it's, it's the truth here. I've been a fan since since I've known who you were. I'm glad that uh, we we're finally able to have a conversation together. Because again, this isn't this isn't something that we've really been able to do ever. So this was this was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was. All right. Thank you again. And hopefully right. we'll talk soon, sooner than later. Are you going to Essence this year? I hope so. I'm trying to uh, actually do live podcasts of Ratchet and Respectable at Essence Fest. So we'll see. All right. Well, I'm probably going to be there this year again. So, you know, we'll, you know, we'll kick it. We'll get some Jack. We'll make time. I'm drinking again. So I'll, I'll have some Jack, some Honey Jack. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Isn't Damon dope? This is one of my favorite interviews. And I never say this after interviews because I appreciate everyone who comes onto my podcast to speak with me. Damon's one of my faves. And this interview, over the moon, so glad that it happened. So next week, we'll be back. As always, I appreciate you tuning in. If you need a little ratchet and respectability in your life until we get to next week's podcast, you can follow me on my social media accounts, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, Demetria L. Lucas. Don't forget that L in the middle. Very important to finding me. If you like what you've heard, send me a nice DM, send me an email, leave a nice review if you're following on Apple. Also, I posted a bonus episode last week, a wonderful introduction to a new podcast by Zane. Please give that a listen. Many of you have asked that I extend the podcast beyond another 30 days. I would love to do so, but that determination is based on how I can monetize this. Let me keep it 100. If you love this podcast, I'm not asking for your cash, not yet. I am asking that you go back and listen to the bonus episode, which features a great new podcast by Zane. I would really, really appreciate that if you could do that for me. If you've listened once, listen again. Help me get those numbers up. In the meantime, I'll speak with you again next week. Bye.